It's so great to be with brother. It's so great to be with brother Habib on this Wednesday evening. So Stacy Berry, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is Stacy Berry, the author, and entrepreneur, and coach, and a community leader. She has been active in Black History Month events and International Women's Day. I just want to get her reflections. What is what is your takeaway from yesterday's International Women's Day? Uh, so yesterday, there's a couple of themes that were trending, right? Break the bias and women inspiring women, which I think is important. So considering the position that women are globally, it's always good to stop and pause and just shine a light on women so that the world can know about some of their challenges, their triumphs, how they're contributing, but also the inequality that still exists. We know in a lot of undeveloped parts of the world, a lot of young girls don't get access to education. There's some women that are, you know, given into like child marriages and a lot of, you know, human rights uh, concerns and violations. And so it's good to just kind of pause, you know, and recognize that, you know, celebrate women who have done great things in their career, in the community, who are lifting as they climb, and then reminding people of the importance to just kind of have deeper compassion for each other and doing what we can to bring other people along so that they have better economic and social equality. So when we look at the political landscape, we know there's not enough women. We look at C-suite positions, there are not enough women. And we also know women aren't getting paid um, for equal work at the same rate as, as, as men in some sectors. So, you know, it's good to have these days, you know, just to reflect on some of these pieces and do what we can collectively to make it better uh, for women. Well, happy International Women's Day to you, uh, Stacey Berry. And thank, you. thank you for all the awesome work you have done to fight for women and their equality. Um, I know you also have been involved uh, with Black History Month, which uh, we just celebrated. We did, yeah. What's, what's your take on the, the celebrations this year? Well, I mean, Black history for me is 365, right? I'm Black 365. (laughs) I think we always need to constantly, you know, celebrate our uniqueness. Uh, But I'm very involved as as an author in the, the literary community. So I am one of the consistent speakers for Kaya Publishing. So shout out to Kaya Publishing. It's a Black owned publishing company. And so what they what we do is a series of workshops to the community that's accessible. This has been online for, I would say, from the time the pandemic has started and we did one for black history. And so I talked about the importance of, you know, writing and sharing your story, because when we look at the historical context of what has happened to, especially in African, for African-Americans during slavery, there were laws that said you couldn't read, you couldn't be caught with a book, you'd be subject to lashing. So I know that there is a privilege to be able to have access to information and to read, but then it's not that that privilege isn't being enjoyed by everyone. So when we look at the global scale and we look at certain undeveloped parts of the world or countries that are labeled undeveloped, there is still a lot of challenges with speaking up and having freedom of speech to write your story, to speak out against the government, to speak out against injustices. There's a lot of consequences for that. So there's people who put their life on their line to be like a journalist or to share their story, to be an investigative reporter. So it's good to still recognize that 
a lot of people still, we all have a far way to go as a collective humanity, but then as a black person recognizing there was once a law that says someone who looked like me couldn't be caught with a book, couldn't read. And so I think literacy is very important. There's still a lot of literacy gaps. And so I like to be able to contribute to this discussion to encourage youth to read, to enjoy books. You know, I think there's a lot of great knowledge. And so that's how I have been contributing, you know, to black history. And then there's a lot of collective events that are happening where we're celebrating black um, artists, we're celebrating black professionals. And, you know, you'll see it within just the community, the flyers and different people organizing these events that are designed to educate our community, uplift and hopefully inspire and then and help everybody kind of come together, you know, just understanding the black experience and the black story and hopefully having a greater appreciation for who we are and how we've contributed and continue to contribute. Awesome. Well, thank you and, and uh, congratulations again for your being an author. Uh, you have published a beautiful book, which I had the pleasure and the honor of having a copy. Thank I can you. see your banner in the background, yes. Reflections of Life, <laughs> yes. Stacey Ann Berry. Tell us a bit about your book and how you came about to publish it. Certainly. So Deeper Reflections of Life is a compilation of faith-inspired poetry. I started writing at 17 from a place of pain, sadly. So when I was 17, I lost one of my cousins to gun violence. And then I was in my early 20s. I lost a second cousin to gun violence. And so during that time, it wasn't as common to seek grief counseling, right? A lot of people in my peers, we didn't even know what that was. And so my outlet was either music, writing, poetry, and you just keep it moving forward, right? And I've also lost, you know, folks I went to high school with to gun violence. And it's, it's a really sad situation. And it still continues, right, this epidemic of youth violence, violence in the community, and it's not unique to the Black community. There's a lot of communities that are plagued with violence. And so that is when I kind of started writing poetry and just expressing my pain and I would collect it. And over the years I would do a little spoken word at a cafe and just didn't think of putting it in a book. And my late mother who passed away kept saying to me, you need to put this in a book. You, you need to just put this out there. And I had doubts, right. I didn't have the confidence to like go out there and just put these poems to the world. And so um, sadly, though, when she passed away in 2016, I was like, you know, I need to honor her legacy. I need to find a way to just like make this book happen. So the last chapter is called My Mom's Words of Wisdom. And it includes uh, quotes from her great things she used to say to me growing up, you know, notes and cards and these kind of little special things and messages and her writing is in there as well. And so I was like, I should just get this book done and do it as a tribute to my mom. So in 2018, I had a great, beautiful book launch, which is on my website, Stacey Ann Berry, but it was also memorial as a tribute to my mom. And so I self-published. I found like a local publisher, you know, and found some people who can do the graphic design. I was very hands-on in the book. It took kind of about a year to put it together, but I started typing and transcribing these poems over like several years, right? So it's just getting that manuscript manuscript ready to give to an editor. Uh, so doing all of that was challenging because the publisher I worked with at the time did kind of drop me three weeks before my book launch. So unfortunately, she didn't go with me to the finish line, but I'm somebody who believes in getting things done, figuring things out. So I found another editor. I found a local a printer. I figured out how to use a print on demand system, which is a great system. Ingram Spark is what I use. And it gets your book to 30,000 outlets across the world. And you have full control. You control your message and the content. But it took me hours just to figure out how to use a system, the right file to upload. But I got it done, got it in time um, for my book launch. And I now have an ebook and I would love to do an audio 
book, considering that it's a uh, spoken word. So that's a little bit about my, my, my journey to my first book. It, it wasn't easy. It did have hiccups and challenge, but I believe you just persevere and you just keep it moving. Well, I must say congratulations. That's so awe-inspiring awe that you <laughs> were able to self uh publish across 30,000 platforms? Yeah, yeah. so if you just go to any book bookstore, whether you are in um, the States, you're in the UK, you literally can just Google my name, whatever bookstore is there, you'll find my book. It's on Amazon, it's on Barnes and Nobles, it's on a lot of the online, but in your local store, if you go to any local store in, in Canada, you just give them my book title, Deep Reflections of Life or My Name, and they could bring it up. And, and bring it to your local store. You just pick up your copies. So these print on demands and global distributions are great because it has opened the market for you know everyday people to share their stories, right? So pre prior to previous to that, there were these gatekeepers where you have to be this well-known person or almost a celebrity for a publishing deal and for them to give you this access to globally get your book available to people. And so now that they have these print-on-demand systems, almost like the music world, where it's easier to now get your music to the consumers and to the mass market than it was before, because now there's less gatekeepers, thankful to the internet. It makes things a little more accessible, even though some, there's some pros and cons to that. And so that system allowed someone like me, who's just like an everyday person to like get my story out on my own but to the mass market and so people in the U.S. and everywhere they could just order my book without me having to come up with some big cost it's a system that's affordable and I find it to be very accessible so I'd love to have it in different languages so it's even more accessible to people who speak different languages and so those are some of the things that I'm thinking about and, and, and working on. Well that's quite resourceful I hope listeners who are aspiring writers will We'll look into that uh, platform. So, Tra yeah. uh, Stacy, tell me a bit about <laughs> your uh, your childhood. Uh, did it inform the person you are today? Are there any stories you would like to share with us to show that how your childhood informed the person you have become today? Right. So, I mean, I didn't have a walk in the park childhood. I was blessed to be raised by two amazing Jamaican parents who came with nothing. Like you know, a lot of immigrant stories. They came with nothing. My mom started as a live-in nanny with the live-in nanny program. So, you know, in the seventies, that was one of the only ways a lot of women from the Caribbean could get here, you know, through the immigration program. And it had a lot of challenges around how it was rolled out. And then of course, then my dad came and, you know, they had a very long uh, marriage. And so, you know, with their hard work and support, I was fortunate to have not just my parents who raised me because they came with this value of it takes a village. And I still believe it takes a village to raise children. So I had grew up having neighbors I call auntie. You know, my mom has these friends that were her nursing friends because she did go to nursing school, became a nurse. She was one of the frontline nurses. So when SARS hit, my mom was on the front line. She was out there and a lot of her friends and they were the wow. nurses who survived SARS. And so growing up and seeing a mother who did 12-hour shifts, sometimes she did 24-hour shifts. Sometimes, I mean, she would do you know, one shift where she's at the hospital, then she was also Victoria Order of Nurses, VON, they're known, where you go door to door in people's community. And one day it was take your kids to work and she took me. And when I saw how hard she had to work just so we could have food on the table, the things she had to do, it gave me motivation to like, get my education and get it done because she was a big believer in education. So even though, you know, she had her nursing credentials, she wanted to get 
her RN. She wanted to go further, but life circumstances made it difficult. So she instilled in myself, I have a younger brother, I have an older sister that we have to get our education. And she did everything she can with what she had to stay up late at night. So when I had essays, two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock, she would edit, she would do everything she could. But then I was diagnosed with a learning disability in grade three. And, you know, she assumed that Canadian education would be better than education in the Caribbean which is not necessarily the case because we know that in the islands, they have very good schools. Some of these kids are reading from four. And so she came here with the assumption that every kid is probably even doing better than the kids in the Caribbean to find out there's a lot of kids being slid through the system who have literacy issues where the classrooms are so big, the teachers don't have the time to kind of handhold everybody. Sometimes they're misdiagnosed as having a learning disability. So when she saw what happened to me, she did what she could to help improve my literacy skills. She took me to tutors. She sent me to piano lessons. Like she really tried to give me that holistic upbringing, which I'm so grateful for. But then she didn't just stop with me. She's like, if my daughter has this problem, there might be other kids who are being slid through the system because of the ability of not being able to read phonetically. So she created this phonetic pro phonetic program where she was teaching children from four to like 18 who were either diagnosed with learning disabilities, they had behavioral issues. And for the last 20 years of her life, she helped over 200 kids. She ran a tutoring business called Back to Basic Learning Center in Scarborough. I would some to time to time help her tutor the kids, help them with their essay, Whoa, university prep. Story. Yeah. And so her story was like, you come here as an immigrant, you're a nurse, you don't have much, but then you're pouring so much into the lives of people. You know, sometimes she may have situations where they may not have a full meal and she's cooking up a storm and she's feeding them. So then she became like this community mother, right? So imagine like growing up in a home where you may not have much, but you're seeing so much love being poured out into the community and that give back. So that's why I started volunteering at a young age, giving back at a young age, because I just saw that in my mom and even my dad, he's always think about his family back home, relatives back home, we'd pack all these barrels, they put my brother and I to sit on top of the barrel to close the barrel. And I'm sure there's a lot of communities that can relate to that story of the barrel and come just sit on the barrel and we're gonna make it, you know, close the barrel with the kids on it. So those things are great. But just seeing that they had that heart that you don't have to have a lot to give and to care about others, right. And so I saw that growing up. So that motivated me, motivated me to like, get my education work really hard. I had three jobs in high school. So I had friends that were having a good time. They're going to parties. And I'm like, I got to work on Saturday. I got to work at the music store on Sundays, the optical store on Saturday. I sold um, mortgage insurance during the week. So after high school from about five to eight, I'm selling mortgage insurance. So when I was like 17, 18, I was on the hustle working because I had a vision to pay for my education. I did not want to take OSAP. And so after hearing horror stories of people taking these loans, they can't pay them back. I said, no, I gotta, I gotta figure out a strategy. So that was my strategy. You work hard, you save, you believe it can happen. You look for grants, you look for bursaries. These are things I did. And of course my parents helped me when they could, but I didn't want to put that financial burden. You know, they're trying to survive. And then we had this tuition and I'm like, no, I could really work hard and focus and make it happen. And I was able to get college and my first degree by just like working bursaries and the support that I could get from my family. Awesome. So what uh, high school did you attend and what were the challenges you faced there? High school was interesting. So I went to two high schools. Um, so, you know, I grew up in Malvern, but I went to Laurier, which is like kind of by Galloway Morningside area. Very interesting yeah. experience. 
And then I went to Cedarbrae. So Cedarbrae is where I graduated and I transferred. There were some challenges there. They had some like racial tensions. There was like even a race riot. It was on the news. Like, so I didn't really feel that safe because I didn't find it to be as inclusive at that time. I'm sure things have changed now. And so the reason why I chose that, because I had to be intentional. So, and I want to encourage parents and students who are listening to understand that these high schools have a rating and certain high schools have a percentage of youth that will graduate and will get into university. So my vision was university. And there's certain high schools that were within walking distance that just didn't have a high graduation rate or a high university acceptance rate. There's also a difference in the quality of what they're going to teach you in terms of just the content of the education. And so I felt that the schools that my sister, my older sister, who's my mentor and best friend, helped me to research, they just had a better rating. They had a higher rate of youth getting into university. And just the quality of what you're learning, you're getting the skills you need to do what's required at the academic level, the research and the writing. And so I kind of went outside of writing because typically you're supposed to go into the school that is in your neighborhood. And so there was an opportunity to take in a certain percentage of students outside of writing at Laurier at the time. So went to Laurier, did like my first two years there. And then I transferred to Cedarbrae because I just wasn't enjoying my experience at Laurier. There was a lot of challenges. When I went to Cedarbrae, I had a teacher that this woman taught me how to do my taxes. She taught me how to manage money. Like I came across some of the best teachers that this public school system could have ever had. I'm like, these teachers are in it for the people. They're not even in it for the paycheck because they were teaching us things that weren't in the curriculum. And they would say, this is not in the curriculum, but if you're going to go to university, if you're going to go to university, you need this, you need to take advance. So I had so much coaching that I'm so grateful for. So shout out to Cedarbrae and the great teachers at Cedarbrae Collegiate. And so doing Cedarbrae, equipped me for like higher level education. I still wasn't ready for university directly. So I went to Seneca, right? I did two years at Seneca and I felt I would get the practical hands-on experience for like a job job. So I did a legal administration program, which basically prepared me to work in the courts and do like all the transcribing stuff that you see when the judge is talking, things are happening to somebody typing. So I was trained in that, but I always wanted to go to law school, but I felt I needed the practical. I needed to know how to do like letters and certain things that law teaches you the theory, but it doesn't teach you kind of those practical administrative stuff. So I took the longer route instead of going from high school to university, I went to college to get some practicality. Then I went to uh, university. So I do feel that, you know, my high school education did prepare me, you know, I'm glad that I was intentional with researching the high schools I went to. So you don't just have to go do whatever's in front of you, like you could research and change the hands you were dealt. And so I took the time with the support of my sister, we researched, I'm like, okay, this school may be better. And that's what I did. And and, and just continued on this academic Well, journey. I'm glad you say that you went to college after high school because a lot of kids, uh, they look done on college education. That's amazing. And uh, you, were, you were a testimony to that, that you went on to university and successful yeah. career. What was your, um, did you face any kind of a discrimination at in university? And uh, how oh, did you Lord. overcome that? Listen, this, the concept of discrimination is not so much discrimination. It's the, the racism in the, in, the, in, the, in the textbook. So even from high school, I don't know if you know the book, Streetcar Named Desire. I think a lot of these books have been removed. Thankful to the advocates of teachers. I know there's teachers on the front line making these changes. But I remember reading Streetcar Named Desire and other books, and I'm seeing the N-word, and I'm seeing the N-word. And I'm not the type that's just going to sit there and say nothing. So I'm like, why am I seeing the N-word? Are we, are we going to talk about the historical context as to why this racist term is in this book? Or, you know, are we going to like 
we're just going to read this. Like you're, this is a literary class. This is my English class. You're supposed to teach me how to write better. So I would be really vocal and take it to the principal, the vice principal. This book needs to be banned. And I was yeah. going on. So you see it in high school, you get to college, you see the same thing. And I'm thinking, what is going on with the, with this curriculum? Right. And those things are really uh, heartbreaking. But for me, when I say things, I'm not just thinking about me. I'm thinking about all the kids of color and the black kids coming behind me who are going to be faced with this. And they might feel discouraged because it's like, I'm not seeing myself reflected in the curriculum or in these books, right? Why aren't we reading, you know, books by Booker T. Washington and W.E. Du Bois in an English class and Frederick Douglass, right? So it wasn't until university, I had to intentionally look for Black history classes in order to read books by Black people, right? Black scholars, Black thinkers, scientists. These are some of, these are still challenges when we look at higher institutions, very Eurocentric, right? And so I had to do my own self-education and go to the library and read these history books on, you know, Black scholars and leaders just to to learn because the school system was not giving this information. And so that's where I saw like the racism manifest in this kind of systemic by design way. And it made me think about, okay, who's approving the curriculum? What's the process? And this is when you understand the role that government plays and there's a minister of education and there's a bureaucracy and there's people who are policy people there's people behind the scenes that are that approve things and so that would be an example of just seeing more the racism i also applied to law school you know many years later of course didn't get accepted but then there's research that talks about how these standardized tests are biased towards black people and there's all these kind of barriers that are kind of within the system to keep a certain group of people out. It's also very expensive. So if you come from a low economic background, that keeps you out. So you have like economic barriers, social barriers, right? And so there's a lot of fight you have to do because the discrimination and the racism is kind of built in the system and it's very intentional. And so you, you see this as you navigate through the system, right? And it's like, you're trying to learn, but you're also having to fight to get ahead and to just go to the next level and the next level. So those are some of the kind of examples um, that I experienced, at least in the school system. And a lot of it has changed. And I was able to uh, be on the, the um, York University Black Alumni Network for the last two years. And we had an opportunity to give feedback on York University's anti-Black racism strategy. You know, we had meetings with the president of the school and they do have a great strategy, but we as like Black professionals who graduated were able to give our insight because we're thinking about what is it that the students need to see? And we had other, you know, students and people just give the president like feedback, like this is what we'd like to see to feel more included and as a part of the system. So it's good to be able to kind of be a part of that change on a collective with you know like-minded people in the community because it's not about you know me it's about what can we do to make the world better to make the community better for those who face barriers and so that's where I had a really uh, good opportunity recently. Wow so you actually are giving feedback now to the president of York University <laughs> alma mater wow right that's, that's incredible things come full circle right it it was a great um opportunity but it's good that you have you know leaders that will take the time to reach back so sometimes people lead from these glass ceilings and they don't do the consultation they don't like go to the community and be like okay we have this idea for what we think the community needs but ask the community what do you need how can we better help you like if, if we had that in our whole political system we'd have better laws we'd have better policies but too often they make these laws they make these policies and there's just not enough community engagement there's not enough consultation to kind of give that feedback. So things are kind of like a work in progress where everybody's opinion is valued, right? You don't have to have 10,000 degrees to understand how to build a good anti-Black racism strategy. So it's good to have the academic um, perspective. It's good to have grassroots. It's good to have people lived experiences so that you have just a better policy or a better system in place because you get all those different views. And so that's just been, you know, my approach to, to that kind of work.
Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you're logging in and listening, uh, Assalamu alaikum, shalom, and shanti, and peace with each and every one of you. We are interviewing our headliner guest this evening, Stacy Ann Berry, and she's an author entrepreneur as well as she coaches youths in our community. You heard earlier that she wrote her book after she lost her two cousins to gun violence. Uh, Stacy, we are very troubled with the gun violence in the community. Uh, as you know, I work in the prison and mm -hmm. I work in the community and this is an ongoing uh, problem. Uh, mm -hmm. We are hoping that those who will be listening to this podcast, that they'll be inspired by you and, uh, and knowing that there are people who have gone through this loss and they find ways to repair, to, mm -hmm. to write, to sing, to perform. Um, in your case, you've been writing and you also perform a bit. And... Um, I I know that you um you're reserved about your music, but of course yes. <laughs> you're a big hit when it comes to music and rap poetry. <laughs> Tell us a bit about what was your experience in giving back to the community by mentoring the youths, especially especially during the pandemic. Oh my goodness, it's it's just so important. Like honestly, I get joy from just giving back, and the joy comes when I hear them say, "This has been so great. I really needed this." So I have a friend. Uh, shout her out, Natalie Johnson. She's like a, I know her forever. A great, wonderful lady. She's a teacher, and she runs a nonprofit. She's mentoring all these youth. So she said to me, "We should do like these free Zoom sessions where we talk about you know how to cope during the pandemic because we kept hearing stories of youth feeling isolated and just a little depressed because everything's locked down. They can't see their friends. They don't know what to do. So we kind of designed." this kind of wellness um, workshop where you kind of do like a health check and assessment, encourage them to eat healthy, you know, get fresh air. And we just kind of came together and gave these tools and tips as to what can you do now, you know, to like look at this lockdown situation in a positive light. So we came together and we just did that as a give back. And I think we did about two series of it and a few youth in our networks came. And so they found it really helpful. And so I started to be a mentor with Ryerson University last year for their Race Forward program, where where I'm paired with students of color, where we meet once a month, and I just share insights on helping them develop their career and kind of map out where they want to go. So some of these students may want to go to grad school, law school, they're not sure, they're in between jobs, they're trying to position themselves for a good career. So I share a lot of tips, resources, and insights as to how they can do that. And so that's kind of one hat I wear. I'm also the Toronto chapter president for Blacks and Technology Foundation. Yes. They're based in the U.S., but they are in 11 countries from Australia to Europe to the motherland, which is Kudos great. to you. Congratulations. Thank you. Let's hear some more about that. Yeah. So I'm trying to build out, you know, a team of directors and volunteers, but my vision is to really engage students to kind of inspire them to think about not just careers in tech, but how to be leaders or, you know, build their own business. But this is a network that has a lot of sponsors, a lot of resources. And so they can just tap into it as just another, you know, way to navigate, to get the support that they need that I didn't have, you know, enough of, right. There wasn't a blacks in tech when I was like a student. And one of the things I also want people to understand you don't have to be an engineer or a quote-unquote STEM professional to work in tech. And so the fact that I'm a public policy professional and I'm in this space where I'm speaking at tech conferences, I realize that the tech sector needs somebody with a public policy background to help them develop better policies, to help them, you know, understand how to navigate government, you know, pitch ideas to government, proposals to government, and that's the work that I do. So you have to know how to make your degree work for you. So if you're a marketing person, all of these tech 
companies, they got a marketing department, you're an accountant, they got an accounting department, they got a legal department, you know, and so it's about like getting people to see beyond these kind of boxes that were put in, right? So just because you have a law degree doesn't mean all you can do is law. There's so many other things you could do. You could be a lawyer within the nonprofit sector or use your legal education to do something that is not required you to be in the courts, just for example, right? And so what I'm trying to do is also get students to see these kind of non-traditional opportunities in this new industry that's thriving, because we know that technology is going to replace a lot of jobs. So it's like how to see opportunities there and position themselves accordingly. And so, you know, it's really cool. It is volunteer but you know I love their vision I think it's great I think you know it's just powerful to be a part of a network of people who are all kind of passionate about you know the same thing and vision and uplifting the community the best way we can so that we can bridge the digital divide I mean who would imagine this young girl coming from Malvern making it all the way to Twitterverse you know the- <laughs> Speaking of the Twitter uh, conference, a bit. metaverse. It was a metaverse conference. Metaverse conference. Yeah, it, that was something else. Over a hundred speakers over four days. Like it was next level. They had scientists and all like these really, really brilliant, brilliant people. And you know, I was speaking about five pillars of. Uh, community development, but it's about how do we get people in the tech space to recognize the importance of ethics. We need to have an ethical lens because there are some ethical challenges when we think about human rights violations in the tech supply chain. So many of you may know that cobalt has to be extracted from the Congo, for example, but who's extracting the cobalt? Cobalt, what kind of conditions are they in, right? There's a lot of articles that are pointing to children being a part of this whole system, right? And so this is where public policy lawyers really come in handy in this tech space to ensure that, you know, there's equity through the entire chain, not just at the top and those who want to work in these spaces, you know, they're advocating to have more people in color in these like glass houses and these big companies. But then there's a lot of environmental issues in terms of these NFTs. Everybody's talking about NFTs. It's great. You make all this money. But the mining of the NFTs is also contributing to um, the environmental emissions because there's a lot of energy that it's having to use to mine NFTs, blockchain, cryptocurrencies. So when you have people who are environmentalists and they're in tech and they're public policy or they're ethical experts, this is how we kind of balance the system and figure out, okay, how can we use blockchain in a more ethical way, more environmentally friendly way? But if you don't have people with that background and that lens, you just keep going, but then you're causing harm to the environment, harm to the community. And so we need as many people with different backgrounds to mitigate harm so that we really have an equitable and fair and just world for everybody, not just people at the top making all this money, but what about the people who contribute to building up these big tech companies and making these cell phones and these laptops? Like they matter as well, right? So with your parents uh, coming from Jamaica Mm -hmm. and uh, imparting such a beautiful uh, values of education into you, um, what about religious values? Knowing that people from the Caribbean are very strong I went to Jamaica and I know like they say it has the highest per capita of churches in the world. Listen, they, they pray all the time. They probably even pray at the room. They pray everywhere. The they like? pray everywhere. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. So faith is, is really important, right? Um, I was definitely raised in a, a strong Christian household and my mom really instilled that, made sure we go to church every Sunday. And so I think that really helps to give you kind of that character development. And it's not unique just to the Christian faith, like in the Muslim faith, and the Hindu faith, like a lot of the things we have in common are these concepts of patience and forgiveness and love and respect, respect for your elders, you know, just being kind to people if they hurt you. 
And in the Christian faith, it's called the fruits of the spirit, right? And so those are, to me, kind of the core values of the faith that makes it beautiful. We too often divide ourselves because of these differences and we get caught up in the religiosity. And I just don't think that's the place to be right. And so I think there's a beauty in just understanding, you know, the, the power that can come from God being connecting to God, the kind of peace that surpasses all understanding. And it's like, it's a beautiful thing. It's where I go to for strength, right? It's like there's power in prayer, there's power in fasting. And those things are just are beautiful things. So when this world seems like it's crumbling, and there's all kind of crazy things. It's like, where do you go to for solace and peace, right? I go to God, I go, I go into prayer. And so that is one of the greatest um, lessons and lessons that my mom imparted to me, like actually introducing you to the concept of God, you know, praying with you, that's worth more than all the money in the world, because I'm still standing in her prayers, right? <laughs> and, and prayers of my dad and everybody else who prays for me. And so I think it's just so much great value. So I'm, I'm really blessed that I, you know, had parents who, you know, instill that as a, as a value system. And one of the good things about being a person of faith, it really gives you a, a good kind of compass where you're not going to be so driven by doing things just because it pays. It's like, if you have to compromise your faith, your values and who you are for success, it, you know, you, to be a strong person, like you need to have a backbone. You need to have something you stand in, like some principles. So it's not every opportunity I can and will say yes to. There's some great things that I turned down because of my, my belief in my faith. And you so, turn on the metaverse? <laughs> not the metaverse, but you know what I mean? There's, there's some things. And so this is where it just gives you that compass where, you, it gives you a sense of identity, a sense of purpose, a sense of grounded, being grounded and rooted in something. And, and that, that's where I see a lot of a power in, in being a person. Yes, faith is powerful. And um, yeah. we, are, we are blessed to have parents who have grounded us in faith, yes. the values of faith. It's Lent currently. And uh, mm -hmm. um, do you want to share? Are you giving up anything for Lent? Um, no, not quite. I'm not, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I'm not giving up anything for Lent, uh, but uh, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I probably should. <laughs> yes. Um, Lent and, uh, of course, and Easter is coming up. Now, yeah. Stacy and Barry, what is the, what are your your deeper passions for the for in terms of your future goals that you hope to unseat? Hmm. Well, I mean, I am also the founder of Beast Dollar Group, Inc. It is a government relations firm. And the main reason I started this firm is because there is a huge gap in the world of public affairs. We don't have enough women. We don't have enough Black people. We don't have enough people of color in general. And so it kind of looks like our political system, right? Just very unrepresented of the people who actually live here. But it's a very powerful place to be because you can lobby for better policies or you can lobby for worse policies that can help or harm people. And so, of course, I want to bring forward policies that will help people, that will uplift the community, that will ensure that if we're going to have an affordable housing strategy or any housing strategy, it's with the people at the center and people in mind so that we design like sustainable communities. And so I'm kind of in that space of government relations and just doing some work around um, tech and innovation where the focus is to create innovative jobs and to upskill people, but to also think about those who are kind of cut out and marginalized where, you know, folks who are going through the shelter system can be, you know, connected to these resources, these upskilling opportunities so that they're self-sufficient and they're independent. And so that's what I see to be very meaningful work because like, it's just a, like a big vision where you're trying to redesign how the system works. And this is why lobbying is important because you can lobby to do that, but we need to have 
more people with lived experience, you know, putting proposals and ideas to government. So you don't have to be an elected official to make change. You can make change behind the scenes with the right strategies, the right visions, and really pushing for the kind of world that we want to see. And so my vision is to kind of, you know, build out this firm, create other opportunities for people who are underrepresented in this public affairs space, especially, you know, new students coming out of public policy schools across the country who have the same vision and passion for community development. So I center my firm's on community development principles, where we're focused on pol policies and programs that benefit the people, not just shareholders, because there's a difference. You can lobby for some big company, but it's causing harm to the environment because they're extracting all this oil, or you can lobby for an environmental company that's trying to like prevent that and protect our oceans, right? So there's, it's kind of like the legal world, like which side are you on kind of thing. So that's how I see it. And it's really meaningful. It's important. And I, I really hope that more people consider a career in public affairs and public policy because we, we really need uh, more people from marginalized communities to be in that space. Well, it's rare to talk to someone who is an author and... Um community activists and uh, at the same time your your business is about public policy and um, I know given the pandemic things so much BIPOC communities have been heavily been impacted we see we, we, saw, we saw the statistics over and over BIPOC communities nurses and frontline workers and patients and I work in a long-term care with the residents and in the prison I work with, um, you mm -hmm. see BIPOC communities have been impacted. So mm -hmm. uh, I know how critical they are for to have policies that are equitable yeah. and just and fair. So mm -hmm. uh, thank you for that and good luck. And I hope more and more people listening to this podcast, they can look for your website and they can look for you and to talk about the importance of public policy. What's the website again? Uh, bstellargroup.com. So B-S-T-E-L-L-A-R group.com. Bestellergroup.com. Yes. Stacy Ann Berry, yes. the owner and the promoter of public policy that is based upon community development. It's such a pleasure talking to you. I hope we could uh, do this again. Of course, um, it was an honor. Thank you for having and, me. As a guest. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are listening to our podcast on Spotify, please share it and, and, and get in touch with Stacy Ann Berry. There's lots that you could benefit from and that she could uh, also benefit. One more question for you. Beyond Canada, do you see yourself giving back to other countries, maybe in the Caribbean, maybe in Africa, that of would course. benefit from your expertise, your love, your compassion, and just your spirit of being a Black woman of excellence? Of course. Um, and so I actually support a charity, um, Helping Hands Jamaica, for some years and Food for the Poor. And so over the years, I've been to their charity galas. And why I support it is because part of what they do is build basic schools in Jamaica, right? It, it's just so inspiring to see from start to finish. Either they renovate or they build it from scratch. Food for the Poor is doing such great work in supplying um, a lot of like, you know, like items that you need at the hospital. So sometimes you don't have equipment and things like that. And of course, food, right? And so being a part of those nonprofits that are based here who are already giving back to not just Jamaica, but other islands as well, is something that I, 
I've been passionate about for some years. And so just being somebody who supports them financially is important by just donating and looking for more charities that do that, but they document their work. Like you can see from start to finish where all the money goes. And I like that kind of transparency. So I take the time to do due diligence of organizations. So shout out to Helping Hands Jamaica Food for the Poor for the great work they are doing and continue to do. I think uh, Helping Hands has a walkathon coming up, which is really good. So check out their website. Um, and so I do see myself just continue to do that. I've supported Global Medic, which is like a first response when there's a hurricane, when there's an earthquake, when there's like crazy stuff happening. They That's are on my the front lines. Yes, I've been in their warehouse where you're on the assembly line packing all the kind of essential items that people need. And so I've I've done that, been out there, rolled my sleeves up. I think it's so amazing what Raul and his team are doing. And so I definitely am a big proponent of like these international development and seeing outside of Canada, but also supporting local charities here like Young Street Mission, the Olive Branch of Hope. There's a lot of charities that, you know, I'm either behind the scene helping with a gala or just, you know, trying to raise some funds or do my own personal donations. And there's Scott Mission. Like there's so many great charities that are helping people who are marginalized, who don't have a job, who don't have shelter. And I think collectively, you know, if we all just do our part, we can make this world a much better place for everybody. Thank you. And thank you for supporting our work at the One Love uh, Table yes. and the One Love Family Services. Um, we thank you and you have the parting words of wisdom. <laughs> I could probably share one of my poems, which I absolutely hope would be inspirational or uplifting. It's called Rise Above Life Storms. And we all are going through storms right now, especially given the pandemic, what's happening with, you know, those, that country there, you know, Russia. And so just to give us uh, some hope to those who may have experienced loss of loved ones who, you know, people who are victims of war, which is really, really heartbreaking. And it's called Rise Above Life Storms. To rise above life storms, you need the kind of peace that surpasses all understanding. In the midst of heartache and pain, an ounce of compassion will help you rise again. When life fails to meet your expectations, become a beacon of hope to others and you will find restoration. When you feel like life is overwhelming, use your inner strength to rise above difficult circumstances. When the waves of life knock you down, have confidence in knowing that God's strength will help you rebound. Refuse to live in doubt and fear. Believe that you will not encounter more challenges than you can bear. Be confident about your talents and spiritual gifts. Pray continuously. Have faith that miracles still happen unexpectedly. When nothing seems to be going right, life storms should not cause you to lose sleep at night. Challenges shape our character, test our faith, and make us wiser. Be thankful for the rough waves of life and enjoy the ride with a smile. No matter how hard life seems, you will rise above life storms and achieve your dreams. You will rise above life storms and achieve your dreams. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Put <laughs> Thank your hands you. together for Stacy. <laughs> Thank you, Habib. It was so great Thank to be you. on your program. I will just end uh, this and we will talk. Uh, okay.